0: We read from Holy Scripture this evening in Luke chapter 10, Luke chapter 10. And we're going to read the first 37 verses because it is not coincident, coincidence at all that the context for our text, which is the parable of what's often known as the Good Samaritan, is Jesus sending out His disciples to preach the Holy Gospel. Jesus is teaching something by that connection. After these things the Lord appointed other seventy also, and sent them two by two, before His face into every city and place, whether He Himself would come, Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he would send forth laborers into his harvest. Go your ways. Behold, I send you forth as lambs among wolves. Carry neither purse nor scrip nor shoes, and salute no man by the way. And into whatsoever house ye enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if the Son of Peace be there, your peace shall rest upon it. If not, it shall turn to you again. And in the same house remain, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. Go not from house to house." And into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you, eat such things as are set before you, and heal the sick that are therein, and say unto them, The kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But into whatsoever city ye enter, and they receive you not, go your ways out into the streets of the same, and say... Even the very dust of your city, which cleaveth unto us, we do wipe off against you. Notwithstanding, be ye sure of this, that the kingdom of God is come nigh unto you. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works had been done in Tyre and Sidon, which have been done in you, they had a great while ago repented, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon at the judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted to heaven, thou shalt be thrust down to hell. He that heareth you, heareth me, and he that despiseth you, despiseth me, and he that despiseth me, despiseth him that sent me. And the seventy returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven, behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you, notwithstanding in this rejoice not, that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. And he turned him unto his disciples and said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things that ye see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. And now what follows until the end is our text for this evening. and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence, and gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, Then said Jesus unto him, Go and do thou likewise. We read that far in God's holy word. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, parables are stories taken from everyday human life that we experience or that we know about that teach heavenly spiritual realities. They are meant to instruct using earthly physical experiences about the spiritual reality that is invisible to us. And so we have such a parable that Jesus tells that relays something that happened or could easily be known to happen at His own time and in His own place. There was a road that went between Jerusalem and Jericho that was a rather desolate road and that wound through some very difficult passages through the cliffs and through the hills up to Jerusalem that was often traveled and yet because of its rugged, lonely nature was also a haven for thieves who would ambush travelers, especially lonely travelers, And Jesus tells of one such incident where a man who happened to be a Samaritan, a Jew rather, traveling back to Jerusalem and he is set upon such thieves, he is stripped naked and he is left for dead. And three men pass by, a priest, a Levite, and then a Samaritan. Not only do the priest and Levite fail to help this man, left bloody on the side of the road and half dead, but they deliberately walk to the other side and leave him to die. Only one, a Samaritan, the perennial enemies of the Jews, stops and does anything. And what he does is he takes care of that Jew, his enemy, to his own hurt and to the expense of his own time. That parable resonates with us. We can easily imagine a lonely traveler, a lonely member of our own congregation out on the road somewhere, who is beset upon by thieves who do something similar so that that individual, perhaps we even see ourselves lying there half dead, stripped naked, and in need of help, in need of someone to come along and show us mercy. And Jesus uses that parable to teach us very important, even more important truths about spiritual matters in the kingdom of heaven. The significance of this parable is that it teaches us that the behavior of the Samaritan is an example for us to follow. Go and do likewise is the ending words of Jesus to the telling of this parable. what the Lord commends for us to go and do likewise is basically to show mercy. The Samaritan, regardless of his earthly relationship to the bloody and wounded Jew, is that he has mercy and compassion. And he expresses that mercy and compassion by actually helping that man in his need. Furthermore, the significance of the parable is that the Lord also teaches the utter wickedness. A wickedness such that it even goes against the very earthly and natural compassion that one ought to have for his fellow human being that is found in that priest and that Levite who claimed to be children of Israel. There is a comparison made between the Samaritan whom the Jews considered unsaved and a Gentile, with those who claimed to be saved, to be God's elect, to be recipients of God's own mercy. The significance of this parable is that Jesus also answers the question that is raised with regard to the second table of the law, Who is my neighbor? And in so doing, Jesus teaches what God requires with regard to to loving the neighbor. We, as a church of our Lord Jesus Christ, even as the church of Jesus Christ in His own day, need to hear this parable from our Lord Jesus. We, too, are spiritual Jews. We are those who claim to be the elect of God, we claim to be those who have been shown great, great mercy by our Lord Jesus Christ. We claim that we preach that mercy, even in unconditional mercy, to be shown. And yet, there is a great danger that we do not. There is a great and real danger that we just like the lawyer who occasioned this parable, have actually a hard and calloused attitude toward our neighbor. That we, in fact, knowing full well that we do not love our neighbor as we ought, when we hear the law of God, go on and rather than confess our sins and find mercy in our Lord Jesus Christ, We, like that lawyer, justify our sinful behavior. And we do that by questioning whether the man or person in need is our neighbor. We justify our cold, callous heart by saying to ourselves, well, that man, that woman, that child isn't my neighbor. And so I'm not required to love them to show mercy toward them. This is what Jesus brings to us tonight in this consideration of the parable that should be called the parable of the merciful Samaritan. The parable of the merciful Samaritan. We notice three things about this parable. First of all, the questions that it answers. Secondly, the life that it teaches. And lastly, the heart it requires. The parable of the merciful Samaritan. Jesus, in telling this parable, answers a pair of questions. It is questions that occasion Jesus to teach this parable as an answer. And the original question is raised by this man that's identified as a certain lawyer. That is, he was an expert in the Old Testament. He was an expert especially in the five books written by Moses. He was such an expert in the Old Testament and the Old Testament scriptures that he was considered a teacher of that law, hence the name, a lawyer. The original question put to Jesus by this lawyer was this, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now that lawyer put this question to Jesus not in order to learn, but in order to tempt Him. That is, the motive behind that question was that this lawyer considered himself a saved child of God. He considered himself a faithful, righteous Jew. And as a faithful, righteous Jew, he was to believe in the coming Messiah, which Messiah Christ claimed to be. But this man did not believe that. And so his question was designed to expose Jesus as a false Messiah. That's what it means when we read that he asked this question in order to tempt Him. It was designed to trip up Jesus, to expose Him as a fool, to expose Him as ignorant, ignorant of the very law that this man claimed to be an expert in. Jesus knows this man. Jesus knows his heart. Jesus knows the motive behind the question. And Jesus knows that this man who claims to be a lawyer, an expert in the law and the application of the law and teaching the law, is in fact ignorant of the law. He does not understand what that law really teaches and what that law really exposes and the real purpose of that law of God. And so Jesus actually ends up showing that indeed He is the Messiah, that He is God's prophet, priest, and king by instructing this man most skillfully. Jesus shows Himself here to be a good rabbi, a teacher, a teacher even of the law, and of himself. And he does that by demonstrating that the question that the man asks is a bad question. Not only does it have a bad motive, but the question itself is bad. Now the subject of the question is not bad or unimportant. The subject is about eternal life, and inheriting eternal life. There is no more important question, really, that one can ask. A question about eternal life, and inheriting eternal life. Sad to say, that's not a question that is found to be important in the church of our day. Perhaps one might even be quite impressed that a man would even ask such a question this shows a certain spirituality where we find in our day, where members and even so-called experts in the Scriptures seem to have little use for eternal life. They're only interested in this life. They're only interested in the application of the Word of God as it pertains to their job, as it pertains to their earthly family, as it pertains to earthly physical life, not this man. The bad part of the question concerns how one inherits eternal life. What's bad about the question is its basis. It is based upon a false assumption. This man, by that question, how or what must I do to inherit eternal life, assumes that one must do something to inherit eternal life. Now, Jesus exposes that man and the bad part of his question, the false assumption, again, in a very remarkable way that's worth noting. Perhaps if you or I were asked the question that that man asked us, we would be inclined simply to say what's bad about his question. If a man came up to us and said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? We would say, but don't you understand? Eternal life is inherited. Eternal life is given. It is granted like all inheritance. Eternal life is something that God gives as our Father. Even as you might be given eternal life, by your or earthly life and earthly goods by your earthly father. You don't do anything to inherit property. What happens is your father dies and there's a will that may or may not give you earthly property with regard to this life. The problem with your question, man, is you think that you must do something. Don't you know? Don't you see? Don't you understand that that's works righteousness? That's the notion that what I do earns God favor. It somehow improves my standing before God. It somehow has something to do with God then overlooking or not seeing my sin. No, to inherit eternal life, what we do is nothing. Nothing. It is God who does everything in that regard. But that's not what Jesus does. That's not how he responds, and there's something to be learned by that. What Jesus does is responds with his own question. When the man asks the question, when the man asks the question, about what he must do to inherit eternal life, Jesus responds by asking him, Well, what is written in the law? What readest thou? What a good question. What a fair question. Jesus is not asking this unfairly. The man himself claims to be an expert in the law. The man asks a question about what he must do. And it's the law of God that teaches us what we must do. So if there's a question about doing, and that question is taught in the law, and the man's an expert, what better question to ask him, what do you read in the law? What does God say in His law? and the answer of the lawyer is accurate it too is a good answer. Jesus even says, you have answered rightly. And if you look closely, and you yourself know the Scriptures, you will understand the lawyer is even quoting Scripture. He first quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, which teaches us that there is a first commandment, the first table of the law, which teaches us what God requires with regard to Himself. Namely, that we are to love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. And then he quotes also Leviticus 19.18, which teaches us that there's a second commandment, a second table, which tells us what God requires with regard to our neighbor, that we are to love our neighbor as our Self. and only then does Jesus respond you ask the question what a man must do to inherit eternal life I've asked you what God says in his law you have responded rightly and my response to you now is go do that and you shall live that too is from The Word of God. God's own Word says that the man that doeth these things shall live. The man who does those things, the man who loves God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, the man that loves his neighbor as himself, shall indeed live. He shall not die. He shall not die because he has not sinned against God's commandments. He is perfect, he is righteous, and such a perfect, righteous man shall live. In fact, it would be unjust for God to kill such a man or bring such a man to death. Jesus is effective in his questioning. Jesus is effective in his method because we next read that the lawyer asked Jesus another question, And he asked that question significantly, willing to justify himself. What does that mean? Willing to justify himself. What it means is this, that this man knows in his heart and conscience, his heart and conscience accuse him that indeed he is guilty before God. That before God, And according to the standard of God's own law, he knows he does not love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength or his neighbor as himself. He knows he has not kept that law perfectly and therefore has no right to live. He knows this. And understand that this is what men know before God's law. This is what God puts in the conscience of every man, woman, and child before His law. And the great difference is that most, most are willing to justify themselves. What does that mean? It means that knowing that, knowing full well that you have not kept God's law and therefore cannot live want to explain away your sin want to justify that sin want to excuse it want to minimize it want to take it from the category where God places it a violation of his sin a violation of his law and therefore sin and transgression and take the sin out of it that's what willing to justify himself means it means that he's not ready or willing to confess his sin. To say before Jesus, yes, I recognize now what you're teaching. I recognize now my error. That I formerly believed that one must do something to inherit eternal life not only, but one can. That it's even possible for one to do what God requires and inherit eternal life. I see that. I confess that. I acknowledge my sin. But rather, says there is no sin. So the man asks a second question. And now this is the question that Jesus really answers. This is the question that Jesus really addresses in his parable, and that question is a simple one. Who is my neighbor? Now you understand the importance of that question. The reason the lawyer asks that question is he understands it concerns the second commandment. It concerns the second table of the law. The importance of that question and Jesus' subsequent instruction of it is that the Lord is teaching exactly what it means when the law says, love your neighbor. And the reason Jesus gives instruction in that is exactly because that is how one justifies one's sin before God, especially with regard to the second commandment. You see, the importance of the second table of the law is that it teaches us that this is how we show love for God. The Bible over and over again teaches that we confess love for God. It's Quite easy to do that, in fact. And there are ways, of course, to show love for God, but that is really demonstrated with regard to the neighbor. That if you want to know whether you love God, examine your love for the neighbor. And at the least, at the least, love for the neighbor one must recognize as an equal part of the law of God. That one is not able to say before the law of God that I can inherit eternal life because I've kept the first table, but not the second. Even the lawyer recognizes both are important. That's why he asks that question. You see, the real problem with that lawyer is that he stands in relationship to God as one who earns his salvation. And therefore, that defines his relationship also to the neighbor. The reason he asks that question is because he understands that he has earned the Lord's favor, that he must do something to inherit eternal life, and therefore, that's the case also with regard to loving the neighbor. He asks the question because it's his understanding that the neighbor is someone whom I show love to, and I am only called to show love to someone who earns my love." That's his understanding. That's his thinking. That God requires of me to love only the one who can love me in return. That I love those who are my family. Love those who are my friends. That God calls me to love those who are members of my own church. That God calls me to love my fellow Jew, but not someone like a Samaritan. That God calls me to love a fellow believer, but not an unbeliever. That's how He justifies Himself that's how he justifies not only his lack of love because don't forget that if his relationship to God is one where he earns God's favor then he has no real love for God and he knows nothing of the love of God for himself that's his problem and therefore there is a problem too with regard to his relationship to the neighbor and so he wants to redefine what neighbor means And Jesus is going to correct him by the parable. Jesus again shows his great ability as a teacher by changing the man's question. Jesus does not simply respond to the man's question by teaching a parable, but at the end of the parable, did you notice, he changes the question. The man asks the question... Who is my neighbor? Jesus tells the parable and asks the question, Who is neighbor to the man who is lying there bloody, naked, and in need? Who is his neighbor? Not who is my neighbor, but who is his neighbor? Now why does Jesus do that? Because when you ask, who is my neighbor, it's really the wrong question. That question makes it really impossible, the question that Jesus asks, makes it impossible for me to redefine who my neighbor is according to my liking. You see, the question of the lawyer is all about me. And that's the heart of the problem the question of the lawyer exposes his own pride, his own self-centeredness, so that even when he's called to love his neighbor, it's all about self. It's love of self even to the exclusion of the neighbor. This is a man who, just like those in the parable, has the idea in his head that I'm called to love only those who are deserving of my love. And why is that? Because really, He doesn't love the neighbor at all. He only loves himself. Now Jesus exposes that. Jesus exposes the wickedness of that. And Jesus shows the root of that wicked thinking, the pride and the selfishness of it, the narcissistic notion of it, by asking and reframing the question in these terms. Who is the neighbor of the man Who is lying there in need? You see, Jesus is teaching the law rightly. Jesus is not simply teaching the law, but Jesus is teaching the law in light of the gospel of mercy. And that's the cure for self righteousness, the gospel. And then the teaching of that law in the light of that Gospel. That's what cures self-righteousness. You see, the law places every sinner in a place of that broken, bloody, naked Jew. That's what the law does. What the law does is places us before God in such a way that there we stand, stripped naked, helpless, bloody, needy, with nothing in ourselves, All we can do, all we are able to do, is plead mercy. We have nothing. There's no help we can bring to ourselves. There's nothing we can do. Someone must come by. Someone must come by as a neighbor. Someone must come by and help us. That's the Gospel. And Jesus now applies that to the very law of God. That's what the lawyer should have seen. That's what the lawyer should have recognized in the parable of Jesus. That really, as a lawyer, as an expert in the law of God, what I should recognize and what I should be teaching the people of Israel is that before the law, no man is justified. No man is able to love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. No man is able to love his neighbor as himself and so live. There is no eternal life to be inherited that way. One inherits only eternal life because of the great mercy of God. And therefore, that's how I must view my neighbor You see how fitting that is for us to consider that in the light of the Lord's Supper this evening? What was the testimony of the Supper? The testimony of the Supper was the great mercy of God. The great mercy of God shown to us in Jesus Christ. Indeed, the great mercy of God in applying to Jesus Christ so that He is left broken and bloodied on the cross for our sins fulfilling all the law and righteousness in Himself, and God yet punishing Him for the sins. We have committed our failure to love our neighbor and God. That's the testimony. And now according to the parable, the application of that that testimony is, go and do likewise. Now that's the life that Jesus teaches in this parable. He teaches a life. That's what Jesus is teaching when He says go and do likewise. Jesus is not teaching now, go and do likewise so that you may inherit eternal life. But go and do likewise as those who inherit eternal life by the great mercy of God. Go and do likewise." Now what does Jesus mean? Well, Jesus means in the first place that we must regard our neighbor a certain way. In fact, we must first of all understand who our neighbor is. In the light of the Gospel, in light of the truth, our neighbor is anyone whom God brings across our path who is in need. Let me repeat that. Your neighbor is anyone whom God brings across your path who is in need. Don't define it any other way. Don't, as the Pharisee, as the lawyer, define it as someone you go to church with, as someone whom you agree with, as someone who shares like-precious faith with you, someone who is of your culture, of your color, of your race, someone with whom you can talk sports with, someone who is not your enemy, someone who is a believer. No, your neighbor is anyone in need whom God brings to your attention, brings across your path. You see, that follows. Does it not? Doesn't it follow, according to the Gospel, that it's God who determines who our neighbors are and not us? You see, along with this notion of the Pharisee that he could do something to inherit eternal life is the notion that he determines who his neighbor is. But we don't select our neighbor. We don't determine who lives next door to us. We don't determine their need. We don't determine any of those things any more than we determine who's saved and not saved. Who We don't determine who God shows mercy to or who He doesn't. We don't determine those things and we don't even determine who our neighbor is. God does. God determines who our neighbor is. That's brought out by the fact that the God, the Lord in the parable determines who that wounded man is and who is the one who helps him. It's the Lord who determines that the wo- wounded man will be a Jew and the one who helps him is a Samaritan. That's deliberate on the Lord's part. You see, if the Samaritan had viewed that wounded Jew from the perspective of the question, who's my neighbor, he would have never helped him. If the Samaritan had come along, saw the Jew and asked the question that apparently the other two Jews also asked, who's my neighbor? He would have concluded, he's not my neighbor. He's my enemy. I'm a Samaritan and he's a Jew. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They hated each other for all sorts of racial and political and also theological reasons. The Jews considered the Samaritans Gentiles unsaved and the Samaritans returned favor. So if the Samaritan had simply asked the question, who's my neighbor? He would have said, not that man. That man's my enemy. You see, Jesus teaches that when it comes to the second table of the law, the important question is not who is my neighbor, but whether I am neighbor to him. That's the question. The question isn't who's my neighbor, but am I neighbor to to that person there who needs help. The question isn't whether he's a member of the church, whether he's Reformed or Roman Catholic. The question isn't, is he American or is he Russian? Is he a friend or enemy? The question isn't, he elect or reprobate? The question isn't whether any of those things, not even, is he my neighbor, but rather, Am my neighbor to Him? The question is whether I'm called by God to be His neighbor or her neighbor. And God answers that question every single time in a very simple way. He makes you meet. He makes your paths cross. That's how God does it. That's especially true when God does that in a very seemingly odd or unusual way, we should really pay attention when that happens. Jesus brings that out when we read that it was by chance there came down a road a certain priest. By chance there was a Jew who was lying there bloody and naked, and by chance there is a Samaritan who happens to come along. The Lord is highlighting something there because you and I both know that Jesus doesn't believe in chance and neither do we. So what's the point? The point is, that's the way it seems. That's the way it looks. But it's anything but. It may seem like chance to you and to me. But it's not. God is put the Jew and the Samaritan there on that same road under those circumstances. It was God who caused a Jew to be bloodied and beaten, likely by His own fellow Jews, so that He is in utter need of mercy. It was God who determines that a priest walks by, a Levite walks by, leaders of the very Jew lying there. Those who hold offices of mercy. Those who knew the law. Those who knew what God required. Those who above all should have helped that man. But instead, it's one who is his enemy and yet is his neighbor because God put him on that road at that time. That's true also of us. It may seem odd, It may seem a strange coincidence that you live next to the people that you live next to, but it's not. It's not chance. It's not coincidence who it is that works next to you, whether it's flipping burgers in a fast food restaurant, or whether it's in a fancy office building. It's not chance whom you come across in business who you sit across at a table perhaps to sign a contract or to share a meal about business it's not coincidence at all who you happen to come across as you're driving your car who is sitting there in the ditch with their engine smoking none of those things are coincidence and all of them are ways that God says to you, you are neighbor now to that person. You might not know them. You might not know their politics. You might not know their religion. You might not know their status economically or culturally. But God has made them your neighbor by making you their neighbor. Jesus teaches that in the first place with regard to our life. In the second place, what Jesus teaches is that we are to manifest the love or mercy of God toward us by providing for that neighbor who is in need. That's the second thing Jesus means when He says, go and do likewise. What He means is provide. Provide for the need of your neighbor. And that's all of His need. Provide, obviously, for the physical needs of your neighbor, just like the Samaritan did for the Jew. Providing him clothes. Providing him physical care for his body. Providing doctors. Bandages for his wounds. Providing money for the cost. What your neighbor needs, provide. If he's naked, clothe him. If he's hungry, Jesus even says, give him food. Bind the wounds of the broken. Provide shelter for the homeless. Of course, we must have discretion. Jesus doesn't call us to be fools, lest we end up like the broken, bloody Jews set upon by thieves. You and I know full well that there are individuals whose paths cross with us, who pretend to have need, who look like they have need, but it's all a setup. People who are in need perhaps because they are lazy, or in need perhaps because they spend anything they're given on drugs and alcohol. But neither may we use that as an excuse. Pray then for wisdom. Pray then for understanding. But the Lord calls us to go and do likewise. To put it another way, don't be quick to use such things as an excuse. You may even help someone who while you're helping them is cursing you but help them it's not limited to physical needs we are called to provide spiritual help to comfort the downcast to befriend the lonely to help those who are tempted with grievous tribulations and burdens and troubles of all kind in fact oftentimes the Lord places a person with physical needs in our path exactly so that we may supply for their spiritual need so that we have opportunity to teach them about the great mercy of God toward us in Jesus Christ and even show and teach by our actions that we, now as disciples of that Jesus Christ, are going and doing likewise. It's amazing that there will soon be coming a day when these very Samaritans, enemies of the Jews, are going to show them compassion and pity those who are scattered and persecuted by their own. We are to help, especially when it's inconvenient and costly. That too, Jesus teaches. It was greatly inconvenient for that Samaritan to stop on his business trip and what he was doing to take the time to bind the wounds of that man, to bring him to an inn, to put him under the care of someone. It was costly for him. Two pence is a lot of money in those days. A lot of money to give it to the innkeeper and say here take this to pay for the bills and if you need anything else in other words convenience and cost are not to be excuses the point is what Jesus requires is more than simply knowing what our neighbor needs but doing something about it do something the problem with the lawyer And thus the problem in the parable of the Levite and the priests is they knew what they were supposed to do. They knew what God called them to do. They knew precisely what they were called to do, but they refused to do it. They in fact passed by on the other side. Perhaps they muttered all sorts of excuses under their breath about why they were not going to help their fellow Jew even. He deserved to be set upon by robbers. It was his fault for going and traveling on his own. I know this man. He's got a life full of sin. He doesn't deserve our help. I'm not going to help Him. And so they did nothing in spite of what they knew. Jesus says, Be then those who don't simply know what to do, but do it. And who ought to know better what to do than us? One could easily ask that question about the priest and Levite. They held the office of mercy. That's what office they held. They weren't prophets. They weren't kings. They were priests. God had ordained them to help, to be merciful, to be kind, to be compassionate. And that especially, not simply with instruction, but with goods and services. Who knew better? And yet they refused. We could ask ourselves the same question. Who on the face of the earth teaches God's mercy? God's sovereign, particular mercy. His unconditional mercy, His deep mercy, His unearned mercy. Who understands better than we do, I ask. That one cannot do something to inherit eternal life. It must be given mercifully of God. Well, if that's the case, then we ought to be above all those who show mercy more than anyone else. But is that true? Go and do likewise. Now, that requires a certain heart. One cannot do unless one has a certain heart. And what is that heart? Well, it's a heart of mercy, or in the passage, a heart of compassion. That was the chief virtue of the Samaritan. He took compassion, he showed compassion. That compassion, of course, related to his mercy, as even the lawyer himself recognized when Jesus asked him the question about who was neighbor to that man. He said, the man who showed him mercy. And that's the heart that Jesus is talking about. That comes from only a heart that understands that God has shown mercy to us freely and graciously. That's what the Lord is teaching here. The Lord is teaching here that it's impossible to love your neighbor, not only perfectly, but it's impossible to love your neighbor certainly when one believes what the lawyer believed as opposed to the truth of the matter, which is... God has shown love and compassion to us in His great mercy. You see, Jesus is teaching that that's the heart of loving one's neighbor as well as loving God. What moves love? What draws us to God? What brings us to help our neighbor, even when our neighbor is an enemy, to do that to inconvenience and even great cost? And the answer is only a heart that believes that one is saved by God's great mercy. And at the same time Jesus is teaching that the heart of one who truly believes that will indeed, will indeed go and do likewise. That such a heart is indeed moved so that when confronted with a similar circumstance, Jew and Samaritan, we will bend down and we will bind the wounds of the broken man We will bring the broken woman to a place where they can get help, and we will provide for them in their need. Why can Jesus go and do that? How is it that Jesus can in the first place teach us that no one can keep the law and inherit eternal life, which he did, and then turn around and then say, go and do likewise? And not only say, go and do likewise, but in such a way where he expects it. And the answer is because he is the reality. He is the merciful Samaritan. He is the one who is full of compassion and mercy. He is the one who the greatest inconvenience to himself and at the greatest cost to himself left his own father to help a bunch of helpless, bloodied, naked people such as us. That's what we ate and drank this morning. That's the Lord that we partook of. That's whose Spirit is now in us. And so heed Him. Listen to Him now. Not as you're doing, being that which inherits eternal life, but as those who have been given mercifully eternal life go. Go. And do likewise. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and Father, we thank Thee for this parable from our Lord Jesus Christ, which exposes our own ability to inability to inherit eternal life, which teaches us that it is given graciously and mercifully unto us, and teaches us who our neighbor is, and who we are called to be neighbor to, and that we are as those who are recipients of thy mercy called to show mercy to our neighbor. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.